This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. Every child deserves a team. That's the belief behind Jigsaw Learning, a proud sponsor of the B Podcast Network. And it's why the company, founded by educators Curtis and Lorna Hewson, focuses on ensuring success for all learners through collaborative response, an approach in which every child is supported by a team. Through customized professional learning that incorporates workshops, leadership development, online learning opportunities, and more, Jigsaw Learning can guide you every step of the way to create a plan to maximize the collective capacity in your schools. Learn more at jigsawlearning.ca. This is TL Talk Radio, Season 2, Episode 18. Welcome to TL Talk Radio, a regular podcast with Lynn Funihatton and Randy Ziganfus, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziganfus. And I'm Lynn Funihatton. In this episode, we are excited to welcome Dr. Gary Staker. Dr. Staker is one of the world's leading experts and advocates for computer programming, robotics, and learning by doing classrooms. In 1990, Dr. Steger led professional development in the world's first laptop schools and played a major role in the early days of online education. In addition to being a popular keynote speaker at some of the world's most prestigious education conferences, Gary is a journalist, teacher educator, consultant, professor, software developer, publisher, and school administrator. An elementary teacher by training, he has taught students from preschool through doctoral studies. When he's not on the road speaking or consulting, Dr. Steger serves as a special assistant to the head of school for innovation at the Willows Community School in Culver City, California. When John Piaget wanted to better understand how children learn mathematics, he hired Seymour Papert. And when Dr. Papert wanted to create a high-tech alternative learning environment for incarcerated at-risk teens, he hired Gary Steger. This work was the basis for Gary's doctoral dissertation and documented Papert's most recent institutional research project. Uh, Dr. Steger's work has earned him a PhD in science and math education and a Grammy Award. Gary is also the advisory board of the NSF-funded project BJC for NYC, bringing a rigorous computer science principles course to the largest school system in the United States. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks for having me. So recently, you've been uh, talking about this idea of less us and more them. So how does this shift in thinking around the roles and responsibilities of teachers and learners uh, play into your thinking? Well, we live in a time where a lot of folks in policy-making positions can't differentiate the difference between teaching and learning. 
Um, they view learning as the direct result of having been taught or as some sort of contagion you can just toss in a classroom, pull the door shut really quickly and hope that it <laughs> spreads. Um, and, and, and I really believe in the, the Piagetian notion that knowledge is a consequence of experience and that we should always try to put experience first and the best way to do that is to shift agency as much as possible to the child. So whenever I have an opportunity to speak with educators or work with schools all over the world, I often leave them with the idea of less us, more them. That any time you think you should intervene on behalf of some educational transaction, it's worth asking yourself, what's the least I can do? What's the most that they can do? How can I shift the most agency and responsibility to the learner? Because the, the learning experience then will be, be richer and there'll be a greater chance for understanding. So why, why is this idea of learner agency so hard for us to get, not only as educators, but certainly, like you mentioned, policymakers? Why is that such a hard concept to get and to actually implement? In some ways, it might actually be primal. If I saw a photo recently of, of children in a remote African village who had never seen text, let alone a computer. And when, when tablet computers were dropped from the sky into the village, kids not only figured out how to use them, but they quickly organized themselves into small, what you might consider classes. And there was one kid standing over the rest, kind of giving instruction. Um, you know, three-year-olds who have never seen school before will, will, will be a little tyrant if you ask them to play school. So in some ways, I think there's this sort of primal kind of evolutionary notion that that learning is the result of something that's done to you by someone else. Um, but, but I think w w it's also rooted in um, a, a desire for accountability and, and mm -hmm. agency. Teachers no longer have, have much say in what they teach or how they teach or even when they teach. So they're given pacing guides and scripts. So they're looking over their shoulders all the time so they won't shut up. And, and therefore, they're kind of dominating all the activity in the classroom. And even in classrooms where the teacher isn't lecturing from bell to bell, um, the, they've choreographed the classroom in such a way that, that they're the center of attention at all times. And, and I think that that's a mistake. So you said you're at an early learning conference, and it seems like, um, from our experience, in the early learning realm, and certainly in the earlier grades, this less us, more them is more common, and it becomes more us, less them, as sure. we as we move up in the grades. Do you see that? And like, what is well, it I, that we're doing? I think, I, I think uh, probably, and because we start putting content ahead of kids. Um, but even, you know, I'm at a Reggio Emilia conference, the North American Reggio Emilia Alliance conference, and there's a, a great story about um, Loris Malaguzzi, who was the kind of intellectual father of what's now largely considered the best schooling in the world. And, and it was a time where he accused one of his best teachers of being too blonde. And, and what he meant by that was she was too present. She was too big in the classroom. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the spotlight was on her too often. Mm -hmm. And that, that if she wanted the kids to actually be involved in the construction of their knowledge, um, she needed to fade into the woodwork a little bit as well. Um, so I think when we, when we fo the focus is on delivering content as, as opposed to creating a productive context for learning, that um, that becomes the case. I've be been obsessed over the past couple of years by the question of what's the smallest seed a teacher can plant that generates the, most, the largest blossom or the most beautiful garden? Um, what's the minimal intervention that, that, they can, that they can present that creates the impetus for kids really deeply being engaged 
in intellectually rich and creatively expressive work. Thinking about those, the shift in re- roles and responsibilities and in your analogy here, thinking small instead of thinking how do they prominently place within the classroom, um, you know, what, what are the challenges of shifting that? You know, what are, the, what are the challenges for our teachers to shift that and how can we help them navigate those challenges? Well, there's the, well, first of all, my, my colleague and mentor and friend Seymour Papert once said that billionth of a percent of the knowledge that's in the universe, yet we quibble endlessly over which billionth of a percent is important. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe one of the reasons why I think the way I do is because somewhere along first grade, something inside of me said, most of this doesn't matter. Mm. Um, and and there's, the, the, there's a story that may or may not be apocryphal that, that helps teachers perhaps think about how to make this shift. There's this story about um, Sinatra going backstage at a concert to meet Luciano Pavarotti and saying, Maestro, how do you end your notes so beautifully? And Pavarotti said, you close your mouth. (laughs) So, so (laughs) So the suggestion I would make for teachers is if you've been lecturing for 40 minutes at a time, try 20. If you're lecturing for 20, try 10. If you're lecturing for 10, mm-hmm. try 5. The great gift that I, that I received from working with these severely at-risk, often mislabeled and maligned kids who were incarcerated um, was they would not suffer more than a minute or two of instruction. And it turns out that's all that's ever necessary. Show the kids something, ask a good question, let them do it. You can, mm-hmm. you can bring them back together to share a, a teachable moment or to answer a question or to celebrate a triumph of one of the classmates to, sh- to say, Randy or Lynn knows how to do something, ask them. Um, but in most cases, uh, we really could just close our mouth and, 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 and let, let the learner learn. So it's mm-hmm. a good segue into the next idea of, of this phrase that we hear so much of today, but probably really don't understand or have a, a comprehensive vision of, and that is student-centered. So in your world, in your mind, what does that look like? I mean, you've, you've done a really good job so far, I think, of, of saying, uh, of giving us some responses here with stories to back them up. So give us a story about what does student-centered look like? Well, I'll, I'll come back to, to Malaguzzi again because I've got him on the mind today. But he said that the classroom should be a thousand laboratories and it should honor the hundred languages of children. Um, so one of the ways in which things are student-centered is, first of all, by starting from the inquiry, the questions of the kids and the interests of the kids and putting that ahead of some arbitrary list of stuff that we think that we need to deliver to them. Um, but then remembering all the stuff that we know about good teaching. So there's centers and projects and independent work and there's sufficient time so kids can get lost in something that matters to them. Um, some, some of what we might consider the best schools suffer from the, po- the poverty of abundance where we're endlessly interrupting children to go to something fabulous. Um, but the question then becomes when did they ever get good at something? And, and yet, you know, at, at the kids every 20 minutes, um, we then have the audacity to say that they have short attention spans. As my friend Deborah Meyer likes to point out, there's no one with a longer attention span than a little kid. Mm. The, the mm-hmm. problem is... They, while young people have a remarkable capacity for intensity, there's often an acute intensity imbalance between them and their, their approach to learning, their confidence as a learner, um, and, and the pace of, and the expectations of the classroom. You know, I, I'm not a fan of externally imposed standards, but I have much higher standards for what kids are capable of doing 
than than the folks who make these laundry lists of, of facts that kids are supposed to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could I could give you a I could give you a, a classroom scenario if you'd like. That'd be wonderful. Go ahead. So, you know, I'm working at this at this lovely school in Los Angeles in a teacher mentoring special project curriculum development professional development capacity. Um, a lot of what I'm doing is diplomacy between the administration and the teachers where I say, hey, Randy, why don't you try this? And, and you say, well, they won't let me. And then I walk into the administration and have a conversation. Then we clarify things and try to get everyone on the same page. Um, so early on last year, I was walking past four kindergarten teachers who were having, were having a conversation. And I said, what you doing? And they said, we're talking about our B unit, B-E-E. I said, okay, tell me about it. They said, well... <laughs> We tell the kids about bees, we read books about bees, we sing songs about bees, we watch movies about bees, and then for the culminating activity, we put out a bunch of found materials, recycled materials, junk, arts and crafts supplies, and we ask the kids to make a bee. And I said, turn it upside down. Mm. And one of the teachers said, you mean like a KWL chart? And I said, oh, for the love of God, no. I can't imagine anything more torturous than making a five-year-old make a KWL chart for bees the first month of school. Um, I said, no, I mean literally turn the experience upside down. Start with the experience. So tomorrow morning, put out the junk and recycled material and the art supplies and ask the kids to make a bee. And what you're going to find out is they know stuff about bees. Mm -hmm. And based Mm -hmm. on what they know, you can then ready prepare the environment for their next intellectual development. Um, mm-hmm. And the teachers took my word for it and the next day tried it my way and you needed to peel them off the ceilings. They had kids mm-hmm. who were building bees with jetpacks and making wondrous, fantastical stories <laughs> about bees. And there were other kids who also fully understood uh, pollination. And then when you read books about bees and sing songs about bees and watch movies about bees, um, and do internet research about bees, the kids will make the bees better. They'll, they're, and then their understanding of beeness will improve. It's again <laughs> the, the PhD idea that it's not the role of the teacher to correct the child from the outside, but to create the conditions by which they can correct themselves from the inside. And, and it was important because I wanted that to be a model for the teachers as well, because my larger goal was for the teachers to start viewing themselves as a researcher whose primary responsibility is to understand the thinking of every kid so that they can then prepare the environment better for the kid's intellectual development. Um, and and I, uh, the funny postscript to that was, thank God I never asked them why they teach bees at the beginning of kindergarten. Um, <laughs> The assumption was that maybe it's a second letter of the alphabet or something, but when I finally found out, it was because they use bees as a metaphor for the social organization of the class. And when I went home and mentioned that to Sylvia Martinez, um, she said, you mean like you work slavishly to please the queen and then you die? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, regrettably, apparently that is the metaphor for kindergarten for some people. Um, But, you know, 18 months later... The head of school still says to me, whatever we're paying you was worth it for the bees. And, mm-hmm. and the bee story has become kind of a, a shorthand for talking about breakthroughs in teacher understanding where, you know, the, the principal will say to me, oh, that's almost as good as the bees or that's as good as the bees. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was a, that's in that little that little story is. Less us, more them. It's planting a small seed. It's starting with experience. It's teacher as researcher. Um, it's it's don't lecture uh, first. 
it, it, so it's it, that one little experience models a whole lot about the art of, of good teaching that that I think if more teachers had that kind of ex, kind of experience themselves they would think mm-hmm. differently about their practice sure they would be willing to take that risk so um, Gary is I don't, know, I don't even know about the word risk by the way I, I this, this okay. taking an education like well, like jumping off so 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 starting with a, the end in mind <laughs> No, no, I didn't even say starting with the end in mind. No, because that I think is dishonest to pretend to kids that that they have agency and that we're you know that we're that kids are, that you're each different and your own voice matters as long as you get to my secret end point by a time delimited by me. Um, I'm, I'm talking about if you actually start with the experience, you're going to have a deeper deeper understanding. And and Powell Blickstein's work at Stanford has demonstrated that that if you if you start with the lecture, watch a movie, whatever, the, under, the knowledge construction is going to be deeper than if you do it in the other, other, the other order. But I mean, to come back to the risk thing, I, I, you know, there's so much risk taking being added to schools, you think people would have, would have to wear helmets by now. I, I don't understand, I don't understand what the, the level of risk is in, in just starting with experience as a, or being nice to children or loving what you teach or caring about the subject or developing personal expertise. That doesn't seem risky to me. That seems like what what humans who are trying to evolve and get better at what they do are engaged in. So I'm making some connections to Invent to Learn, Making, Tinkering, and Engineering in the Classroom, um, a book co-authored by Gary as well as Sylvia Martinez. And for some of our listeners, you may remember we previously podcasted with uh, Gary's co-author, Sylvia Martinez, Season 2, Episode 10. I believe it broke the internet. <laughs> twice, twice. <laughs> So can you talk to us a little bit more about how these ideas relate to the book that you and Sylvia co-authored, Invent to Learn? Sure. Well, I've been at this for 34 years and, um, and have advocated for kids learning by doing, learning by making, learning by programming, learning by building robots for decades. Um, and then along came this informal learning mo- movement from outside of schools called the Maker Movement. And, and it sort of... Uh, put some wind in my sails and made me a bit of an overnight sensation. So, um, what 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 what's happening is that there's a growing interest in ending helplessness and regaining mastery over one's own life and destiny um, in the form of the maker movement, where instead of hiring a pro, people are doing it themselves. Reality television, I think, is a manifestation of a basic human desire to lift the curtain on expertise, to have access to apprenticeship experiences in a society um, increasingly bereft of, of um, apprenticeship experiences. So this, this informal external movement of people learning by doing and making uh, resonated with what I believe should and can and often does happen in classrooms. And our book was a way of building a bridge between those two, two communities to explain to the folks who don't give a lot of thought about classroom practice and who often dismiss schooling entirely because they've had it with it. They didn't have a great school experience themselves. They see their kids increasingly miserable um, when they come home from school. And, and, a, and a school setting that's forgotten about kids making things and being playful and creative. Um, you know, I, I, I diagnosed the problem as somewhere around 1985, a couple years after Nation at Risk, 
legislators all over the world said, hey, teaching ain't nothing. And they removed the art of teaching from the profession. And all they left in teacher preparation was animal control and curriculum delivery. Mm -hmm. When a couple of years before that, when I became an elementary school teacher, you had to learn how to play the piano a little bit. You had to mm-hmm. learn how to teach science and math and go on nature walks and bake cookies and sing mm-hmm. songs and make puppets out of Pop-Tart boxes and build your own manipulatives and put on puppet shows and remember that stuff and air rods and gerbils in the classroom and hanging plants and field trips and um, putting on plays. You have an obligation to return that to your classroom tomorrow, not just for the kids you serve, but for a generation of educators that don't know that it's possible. So. Invent to Learn was based on this kind of fortuitous accident of something happening outside of school in the name of the maker movement that I, I, it's not only re-energizing timeless craft traditions, but I personally believe is the last chance at the viability of progressive education and perhaps even just school. Um, you know, if, if, if you think that kids are going to continue to get up before sunrise and go somewhere to read a chapter in a book or take a quiz, I think you're sadly mistaken. Mm. I, don't, I don't pretend to be a futurist, um, but I will make one prediction about the future, and is that school won't enjoy the current monopoly on children's time it, it now holds. Mm-hmm. In other words, kids won't spend as much time in school in the future, in the near future, as they do today. And one of the ways that I know that I'm 100% accurate in that prediction is every politician on earth says the opposite. Uh, but, but you know, when we, when we were an agrarian society, kids stayed home on the farm with their parents. When the parents went off to factory farms, kids went off to factory schools. Now everyone I know works from home at least part of the time. And like I said, just forget about the affordances of the Internet and the fact that there's all kinds of learning opportunities outside of the classroom. Um, ju- the, it's just a pain in the neck to drag a kid to somewhere that they, that they don't see any value in. And the the, the the concern for schools, I'm not willing to give up on schools because that's where the kids are. And I think they're critical to sustaining a democracy, to, to our cultural continuum, um, and, and very importantly, for introducing children to things they don't yet know they love. But if we're serious about the future viability of schooling, then we need to be able to answer the question, why did a kid show up? How did they gain the greatest benefit from being so co-located in the same physical space at the same physical time? And paradoxically, much of the stuff that justifies schools' existence is the stuff that we're cutting too willy-nilly. Mm-hmm. Band, art, science labs, field trips, drama productions, making things in a physical space with, with peers at the same time. So Invent to Learn was, was a way of helping teachers understand all these new wondrous technologies that add colors to the crayon box, that increase our expressiveness, that give kids access to powerful ideas that they wouldn't have accessed before, to, to enhance expressiveness, to add precision, to make real things, to make complexity accessible, um, but also to remind us of, of the sort of beauty and joy and purpose and majesty of teaching and the art mm-hmm. of teaching. And, and restore it to our classrooms because God knows the kids need it. 
So for our listeners, if you're enjoying this conversation, we uh, you need to check out the show notes and link to the Invent to Learn book. Uh, and uh, you can read that book, and I think you'll really enjoy it, especially if you're enjoying this conversation. Legendary educator mm-hmm. Herbert Cole called Invent to Learn a persuasive, powerful, and useful reconceptualization of progressive education for digital times. You may also want to check out uh, our podcast interview with Gary's co-author, Sylvia Martinez, season two, episode 10. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. So Gary, back to the B story. Uh, what kind of school was that? Was that a public uh, public school, a charter school, or some other funded type school? What kind of school was that? Nope. It was a lovely private um, pre-K to 8 school that I work in um, because they were flexible enough to allow me to work in a school when I'm not traveling half the year. Um, but, but a great deal of my work over over my career has been in public schools from Bed-Stuy to Melbourne. Um, my, my work in education started at 18 years old when I saved school music from being decimated in my hometown. Um, I'm deeply committed to public school. And I, th- I think we, we, sh- we ought to consider um, making private schools illegal as they have in Finland. Um, but I don't make any apologies from spending my time with with kids and teachers. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I'm talking about happen in well-resourced schools with edu- well-educated um, teachers and hot and cold running everything, then, then I think we're in very deep trouble. And one of the, one of the arguments I make uh, against charters and vouchers and the other gimmicks for sucking the life out of public education is that if I saw lots of good private schools in my life, then I might actually be susceptible to the notion that that competition makes better schools. But I've worked in hundreds of the world's most prestigious, in some cases, private schools in the world. And, I, and if you blindfolded me and dropped me in classrooms in almost any place in the world, public or private, I wouldn't be able to tell you where I was. And in private schools, in a lot of cases, they just change the blazer color and announce they're better than the school down the street. But the, but the experience for children isn't better. In fact, in a lot of cases, if a kid colors outside the lines, they make them disappear like a Brazilian street child. So, um, you know, I, I'm just trying to have a canvas on which to paint to be able to work with kids on a regular basis so I can test the ideas that I'm, that I'm sharing with you and, and, and in other venues. Um, and the fact that I work in dozens of schools per year, often for a minute, sometimes for longer residencies, um, gives me a perspective. I get to see patterns emerging, and and I'm blessed to have a a school that lets me work around my schedule and and still sees that I make a valuable contribution to them. So in fact, the school I work at is a is a 22 year old private school. Mm-hmm. So I think one of our challenges in public education is we have a lot of constraints that are thrown upon us. And I'm not saying that those are excuses for us not to change or move closer to the vision that you're describing. But from your perspective, having worked in a whole host of different schools, what advice could you give to us as public school leaders to help us figure out the best ways to navigate our system and push our system towards this vision that you're describing. 
you know, ironically, if you talk to private school educators, they think that they're bound by the exact same um, <laughs> the constraints, mm -hmm. which is actually instructive because it's a pathology. Um, a lot of this nonsense that we feel oppressed by, we carry around in our heads with us. And, and we really need to be able to, you know, uh, when I was dealing with my own kids in school, you know, you, the, the kids would come home with some ridiculous edict and you'd ask about it and they'd go, well, no, that's the rule. So, so is it policy, practice, law? Which one is it? And, and I think we should, in any situation, confront our prejudices. Um, and, and ask ourselves what's in the best interest of kids. And if we're not willing to stand between the kids and the madness, who will? I mean, I was just in India. I had to tell people in Cong from Congo and South Africa and Bahrain that, that the Common Core was dead. Um, why a school 10,000 miles from us would have any interest whatsoever <laughs> in a curriculum that's being standardized for Alabama and and isn't even isn't even viable in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Isn't going anywhere, you know, is, is preposterous. But bad educational ideas are incredibly timeless, and they transcend geographic boundaries at the speed of light. It's 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 good good at you know, the, geographic borders are no match for for terrible ideas, um, and but but really good educational ideas are incredibly fragile. And so we need to keep our eyes on the prize. We need to do what's in the best interest of kids. I think in a lot of cases, school leaders really need to start viewing some of these questions in theological terms of whether it's right or wrong or whether it's good or bad for children. And, and then I think everything else follows. I mean, you know, I've had this conversation in, in, in a number of schools where the teachers are absolutely freaking out because – you know, that the, the math scores might go down. And, and even in a private school, and I had this conversation recently, and I'm like, and what are you afraid of there? Well, you know, I'm, I might have to explain to the principal why the scores. Oh, will she look askance at you? You know, again, coming back to this <laughs> risk this risk taking, um, is, is this really why you're teaching in a way that you know is bad for children? Is because someone will look askance at you, or you might have to defend what you do. Um, I, you know, <laughs> I, I often say that the reason why I'm so passionate about these issues is because I didn't go into linoleum sales. This is ultimately about children. And as my friend Jonathan Kozel says, you're only seven once. And if we rob a kid of their childhood and we make them hate school or feel like they're mathematically incompetent, because it's expedient to us or some bureaucrat, um, then you know that's a really high price to pay, and and I think we ought to really just worry about figuring out a way for kids to spend as much time as possible in the company of interesting adults, lower the level of antagonism between adults and children, and create a space based on the notion that everyone, regardless of their age. Um, wants to be in at the same time. I really think we ought to have a great deal more collegiality between between educators, educators and administrators, and everyone and kids. Mm -hmm. And I never have to worry about classroom management because I never feel like I have to manage a classroom. I, I'm often in situations where people will say to me, oh, we, we were wondering if you could work with our seventh graders. Oh, sure. What do you have in mind? 
well, we'd like you to teach all of them now. And I turn the corner into a room and there's 230 kids and laptops. And in that situation and in the prison for teenagers where I worked for three years, there are no discipline problems. There's no one who needs to be sent out of the room. There's no one who needs to be yelled at. There's no one who has to be humiliated because maybe the kids sense that, that I go in with an open heart and open mind and I don't need to know about the way they've been judged in the past or what others have said about them, that I have this sense that we're all in this together and that we've got work to do. It's, you know, I, 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 I have teachers tell me all the time, people who know me, who marvel at the fact that the kids were happy when I was in the room. They'll say things like, you know, they've never focused that long or – and sometimes it's what I think is a terrible activity. But, but there's, some, there's something about not going into a classroom like an opposing army that I think bears fruit and pays dividends for learning and for making it a lot more fun and, and pleasant to, to teach and to learn. So one more thing we want to talk about before we let, let you go, Gary. We want to talk about the Constructing Modern Knowledge Summer Institute that you have founded for educators and this idea of raising the bar on teacher professional learning. Um, Randy and I have been looking into your institute and have had a chance to look at the website, and we'll definitely link that in the notes. But what can you tell us about this institute and this opportunity for teachers and, and leaders? Well, so about 10 years ago, it's, it's the great... The, it's the great pride and joy of my life and my professional work, um, illustrated by two things. One, an educational technology community that was chasing gimmicks and fads um, and stupid computer tricks and not giving enough thought to learning and how it best occurs. And to a progressive education community, a community filled with my heroes who, when asked about computers, viewed them in very dystopian, dismissive, you know, narrow terms. and didn't see them as intellectual laboratories and vehicles for self-expression. And I thought that we needed to create an event where we could build a bridge between those two communities, where they could learn from one another, and where teachers would have the luxury of four days uninterrupted to work on personally meaningful projects and to learn without being taught, to create a space where we ship 50 cases of art supplies and books and electronics and microcontrollers and robotics and craft supplies and toys and various materials um, with which they can, they can make things. Um, and, and through that process to become reacquainted with themselves as learners, to develop the sorts of skills that we would like 21st century learners to have. I often say you can't expect it to, te to, to teach 21st, you can't be expected to teach 21st century learners if you haven't learned anything this century. Um, and, and to have conversations with experts to see what expertise looks like. So this is the ninth Constructing Modern Knowledge this July. We started with a couple dozen people. Last year we had 250. Um, and it's not a place where there's an exhibit hall or a boat show where you can collect <laughs> chopskis and um, be sold stuff. We have, no, we have no sponsors. We have no exhibits. Um, there's, there's no one talking at you all day long. We have one speaker a day. We've had filmmakers and treehouse designers and historians and astronomers and learning theorists and inventors and designers. Um, we've also had leading education thinkers, Alfie Cohn, Deborah Meyer, Lillian Katz, Eleanor Duckworth, Edith Ackerman, James Lowen, um, who often go away thinking and saying, 
I never imagined computers being used in a way that were wholly consistent with the best early childhood principles or my philosophy of, of constructivism or of, of kids being active learners. Um, all the visions of computers in classrooms that we see in the media are being used for test prep or standardized testing. We've never seen them as a way to amplify human potential before. And, and we go to the MIT Media Lab each year um, for a reception. This year we're being hosted by Mitchell Resnick, the director of the Lifelong Kindergarten, the creator of Scratch. For other guest speakers is Carlina Rinaldi, who's the president of Reggio Children, the umbrella organization behind the Reggio approach in Italy. It's taken me nine years to convince her to come to be part of CMK. Um, we have um, Pauli DeMeo, who is the carpenter on TV's Extreme Home Makeover. Two years ago, we had Pete Nelson, who's the treehouse master. And, and I love having people who are great at things, who are true experts and successful at, in careers that your guidance counselor never told you were possible. I think that in and of itself is provocative for teachers thinking about preparing kids for the future. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in my own life, I know two guys who are television show carpenters. Not that they make things for television, they make things on television. That's two more TV show carpenters that I know hedge fund traders or stockbrokers or lawyers or doctors. The world is different. And every year, teachers at CMK make things that they can be proud of, that excite them, that they want to share, that reminds them what they're capable of, that you can create a non-coercive learning environment where kids can do remarkable things, and where some of the projects, I, I, am not, I would say this under oath, some of the projects two years ago would have earned you a TED Talk and five years ago would have earned you a PhD. And they're almost always created by mm -hmm. educators with very little tech experience going into this. Mm -hmm. And CMK provides no formal instruction. We just create the space where you're able to, to create things and to learn in ways that are, that are bigger than you thought you were capable of. And, and, and along the way, teachers come away with epiphanies about their own teaching that, that I think are, are priceless that you could never convince them of if you just set it on a podcast or in a textbook or a teacher preparation program. Um, everything from, I make my kids work together. Why do I do that? It's stupid. I did and look what I accomplished. To a teacher a couple of years ago who came up to Sylvia and said, you know, the second morning I packed the car, I was ready to leave. And we tell everyone each year that they go through an emotional arc. The end of the first day, People think, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? This is never going to succeed. The second morning, people, people want to, some people disappear. But if you make it to the second lunch, you sort of build up momentum and everything sails downhill. And his teacher said, I went, I packed the car, I went to get a cup of coffee before I snuck away. And as I sat down with my cup of coffee, um, the, the, the solution to the bug we were having occurred to me and I was so excited I ran back to my group I threw the coffee away and when I got there my teammates told me that, that they missed me and they were worried about me and I told them what I had figured out and look at the amazing work we did together and we said oh that's a terrific anecdote and she said oh no that's not the moral of the story the moral of the story is when do my students get to get a cup of coffee when uh -huh. I tell them that they have to stay on task focus keep uh -huh. moving um, we've got we've got content to cover so, so we create this environment where people are making things with wood and with bits and with microcontrollers and with LEDs and, and cardboard and every kind of other material imaginable. 
and and by the end of four days, they've not only developed tech skills that are in most cases multiples of complexity beyond what's typically expected of teachers, um, but they actually understand why you would do that and what kind of learning environment one must create if you want that to be, you know, fortuitous for kids. Sounds like a, a very unique learning experience. Yeah, I mean, we, I, I, it's, it's really special. And someday I wish I could enjoy it. I'm, I'm always just kind of running <laughs> it. But, you know, it's, it's, but, you know it, coming back to the idea of making, this was a need. There were no institutions willing to do this. And, and I've run it entirely at my own financial risk for nine years now because I know that it changes teachers' lives. And, and there's no greater joy in my life than creating situations where teachers can spend time with their heroes. You know, at, at CMK, you don't get to say you heard Alfie Cohn. You get to say I spent time with Alfie Cohn. We've got, I've got, we've got wonderful photos of, of you know, Jonathan Kozel looking over a teacher's shoulder while they're building something and then them realizing that one of their heroes is genuinely interested in what they're doing. And uh-huh. a, that's not a small lesson for what we want for kids either. As I said earlier, um, I think it's really important for, for kids to spend as much time as possible in the company of interesting adults and, we, and to recognize the value of expertise and also to recognize despite my aversion to coercion in classrooms, um, I think schools have an obligation to introduce children to things they don't yet know they love. We don't have to pander. We don't have to scrap a thousand years of classical music to, you know, to rap about fractions. Um, we, there's, there's a, the continuing the culture is critical and, and kids love being part of something bigger than themselves, working persistently towards developing expertise. And I know from my own experience, I'm incredibly grateful for the things that bring the most Judy, most joy and beauty and purpose and meaning to my life are things that in most cases I learned from middle school public, you know, middle school public teacher, public school teachers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll be, I'll be damned if anyone will deprive another generation of kids of the kinds of rich experiences that I had. Well, we'd like to thank you for joining us, Gary. And in our show notes, we will link to a lot of the resources that we've talked here. Uh, you can view Gary's blog, and including some videos that he's created and past presentations and keynotes at Steger.org. You can connect with Gary on Twitter, at Gary Steger. We'll link to the blog post, uh, Let's Us More Them, which gives a, a nice overview of these ideas. Um, also, we'll link to Invent to Learn as well as the podcast with Sylvia Martinez. And don't forget to check out the Summer Institute um, that Gary's talking about with Constructing Modern Knowledge. Thanks for having me. It's been a great privilege. Oh, thanks for being here, Thank Gary. You. It's, your uh, your you. vision is very inspiring uh, for mm-hmm. us as leaders. And uh, this has been a really uh, valuable 45 minutes that we spent chatting with yeah. you. So thank you for being here. That's very nice. Thank Thanks. you. Each episode, we leave you with a question or two to think about with the idea of provoking conversation. And this week's question, what are the first steps to leading your school towards less us, more them? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just find out more about the resources and links we shared in today's episode, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org. Look for season two, episode 18. 
We'd love for you to rate the show on iTunes. Let us know your star rating and consider leaving a one or two sentence review. If you have time to do that, you'll help new folks discover this content. That's it for now. We'll see you next episode for a conversation with another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Gary. Thank you. Bye-bye. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.